Let's get into more of what I want to talk about today. Turn back in Mark's gospel to chapter 2. Chapter 2 is where we are going through this gospel. Chapter 2, we're going to look at the passage that starts in verse 18. I've been stewing on this passage all week, and I believe Christ has given me something specific to preach on this morning. Um, It's this fascinating interaction that Jesus has when he's put on the spot with a question. That's when Jesus is at his best, when he's put on the spot and asked a difficult question. I'd love to see how he responds to that. Um, And so we want to read through it, and then we're going to dig out all its meaning. And I think it has a, a lot of significance for us today in the church. So let's pick up at verse 18. It goes like this. Now John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not not fast? Verse 19, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus goes on. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and, the wor- and, the worse, and a worse tear is made. He goes on with a third example. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, Jesus says. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Pause there. What is Jesus talking about? There's this Bible scholar. He's probably the foremost scholar in today's world named N.T. Wright. He's from across the pond over there in England. He's at Oxford. And he says this. Listen to this. He comments on this passage and he, he really tells you what it's all about. So listen closely or I don't think we'll get the rest of it. He writes, Jesus is talking about the shatteringly new thing that was... You can tell he's British. Shatteringly. Jesus is talking about the shatteringly new thing that was happening in and through his ministry. He was, after all, announcing the kingdom of God, saying that God was now becoming king in a whole new way and performing actions to suit the words. Right goes on. Something quite different was coming to birth from anything that had happened before. Something powerful and explosive. When people didn't understand it, Jesus gave them three images about the new and the old. End quote. What does N.T. Wright mean here? Well, let me show you. Go back one passage, or one chapter even, to chapter one. Go back one chapter. We've already discussed this, but it really gets into what Jesus is after here. We're going to read verses 14 and 15. This is how Jesus starts his ministry. This is what he sums up as his main ministry. Verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does Jesus mean by this? He's saying... God is becoming king of the world through Jesus and bringing his kingdom from heaven to earth. That's what he's saying. Something new is happening. Look at that phrase. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
We talked about this. That's like when the start of the Ukraine war, they could have said right across the border in Ukraine, the Russians are at hand. They're here. They're invading. That's what that statement means, that there's a foreign state, kingdom, an army invading into ours. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. His kingdom from heaven is now invading earth. Like an army, the Russian army has invaded the state of Ukraine. That's what he's talking about. But Jesus says, this is what you have to understand. Jesus' coronation ceremony to become king is not on a throne like King Charles III's will be real soon. Rather, Jesus' coronation will take place on a cross. A cross where Jesus is crowned king, not with a crown of platinum or gold, but with a crown of thorns. You see, follow this. And Jesus will fight a battle like every king has to fight when they invade. But Jesus' battle is to fight the cosmic battle against our two chief enemies, sin and death at the cross. To then, Jesus, to then rise victorious out the other side of death and hell to proclaim world victory over the powers of darkness and offer God's gift of salvation to the entire world and entrance into his reigning universal kingdom. And then Jesus will ascend to his rightful throne in heaven over the earth, ruling all of the earth and all of reality to one day return, as it says in the scriptures, and wrap up all of history. This is all that he's saying when he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Invasion, battle, victory, ascension is happening. It's a big new thing on the world stage. Can you imagine... If Jesus would have waited, just do this thought experiment with me. If Jesus would have waited another 2,000 years, and if he would have appeared announcing the kingdom of God is at hand in our time period, in today's world, with Google and Twitter and everything that makes up the cultural milieu of our lives now, I believe he would have said the exact same thing. Didn't matter the time period. I think he would have said, look back at verse 15. He might have used some news outlet to do it or it might have been grassroots. I don't know. But he would have said the same thing. The time is fulfilled. It's right now. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Heaven's invading earth. And here's the response. Repent and believe in the gospel. I think we, if he did that now, in 2022, I'm not in school, so I don't write the date often. I don't use checks. I believe if he were to say that now, just like them, we'd be a little confused wondering, what does all of that mean, Jesus? What does that mean for the world and for 
my life. And in today's passage, Jesus tries to explain this earth-shattering new thing that God is doing by giving us three well-known images. We just read them in the text. Those three images that he uses to try and explain something that's so big were well-known images like a wedding, clothes, and wine. Remember what we just read? Chapter 2, go ahead and flip back to chapter 2. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. He uses those three images to explain and help them out of their confusion. A wedding, everyone's been to a wedding. Clothes, we all wear them, or hopefully. And wine, and we don't all drink wine, but we know what wine is. Wedding, clothes, and wine. This is how he explains this whole new kingdom thing. Take a look at verse 18. It starts with a question. It reads this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That's a good question. You see, the two big religious movements of that day were John the Baptist's movement preparing for Jesus to come. And was the Pharisees. The Pharisees had been in existence about two centuries before Jesus during the Maccabean Revolt. And they had a lot of influence. They were probably the most influential religious group of that time. Okay? And the big spiritual practice of Jesus' day was fasting. It was fasting. That's what everyone did. There were three main pillars of Judaism that went like this. Prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. The Pharisees were known for fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. It wasn't required. In the Jewish scriptures, there's only one day that's required of fasting, and that's Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees were pretty intense about it. They did Mondays and Thursdays. What you need to know is this. In Jesus' time, fasting was a badge of real spiritual commitment to God. That's what you did if you lived in Jesus' time and you were a real follower of God. You fasted. So it was incredibly odd that Jesus that Jesus' disciples did not. And what was even odder is that Jesus, supposed to be the great spiritual leader, the proclaimed Messiah, does not require his disciples to fast. That's odd. Why? Why do you not, Jesus? And so they asked that question. Look at Jesus' answer. This is where he's going to pull a Jedi mind trick. Verse 19, his response to that great question. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from from them. He's alluding to the cross and so on. And then they will fast in that day. So what does Jesus do to the question? He counters it with another question. He's really good at that. They ask a question. He says, well, let me ask you a question. That's how he works. And the question is about a wedding. And it goes like this. By the way, what, what's like the favorite? What's your favorite wedding you've ever been to? The food was amazing. They had a live band or the best DJ. It was the right venue. Just, just go there in your mind. Best wedding you've ever been to. And it can't be your own, okay, because you're a guest in this parable. All right? Think of it this way. This is what Jesus is saying. Imagine going to a wedding reception where everyone sat around and looked at the food but never touched it. They never touched it. What does he say? 
Verse 19. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? To not celebrate at a wedding in the presence of the bridegroom is unthinkable. You're not at a funeral, buddy. You're at a wedding. What Jesus is saying is to not celebrate at the dawn of God's kingdom in the presence of its king, Jesus, is unthinkable too. Because fasting in that time period and today is a sign of mourning. You don't mourn at a wedding. Fasting is a sign of waiting. You don't wait when Christ and the kingdom are now here. What do you do instead? You party. Jesus likens the kingdom and its movement to a wedding celebration. He's saying it's happening now. It's not a time to fast. It's a time to celebrate. Get in with what God is doing. Don't show to a wedding and not eat the food. It's time to celebrate and get in on what God is doing through Jesus. You see, the issue with the Pharisees and others is they were out of touch with the situation because they were out of touch with who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. There's a great scholar named William Lane. He comments on what's happening right here. I want to read it to you. Try your best to listen closely because it's going to help us with the rest of the passage. He writes this. If Jesus' disciples were to pursue the Pharisaic practice or continue to emulate John the Baptist, they would be like people who put a new piece of cloth on an old garment or who pour new wine into old skins. The practice of John's disciples were oriented to preparation for the coming of the kingdom. That's important, especially in its aspect of judgment. That is why they fast. Jesus, on the other hand, came proclaiming that the time was fulfilled. And it is his presence, which is the decisive element of fulfillment. It's here. He goes on. The behavior of his disciples reflects the joyful certainty of the breaking in of the time of salvation. The other two images Jesus uses are expressing the exact same thing. So you have wedding, clothes, and wine. Clothes and wine are expressing the same thing about the wedding celebration. And it's this. They're doing the wrong thing with the right situation. They're doing the wrong thing with the right situation. They're not reading Jesus and what he's doing rightly. Jesus explains. Look at verse 21. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it because it would shrink over time. The new, the, the new from the old and a worse tear is made. And then verse 22, he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Everyone listening to Jesus that day, giving those examples, knew exactly what he was talking about. They were like, yeah, of course you don't do that. Of course you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Like, they'll bust, and there's there's no more wine. They would have totally understood what he was saying. And what he's saying is God is doing something new. What he's saying to them with the wine example is this. That their old bottles of understanding, 
Their own wine bottles of understanding won't be able to contain this new wine of the kingdom. They'll burst. Jesus is saying, you can't go on as business as usual when I'm here and launching this kingdom movement. You cannot go on status quo. In the presence of Christ and his wine-like expanding gospel and kingdom, you can't just go on like nothing has changed. It doesn't work like that. He's saying the situation calls for a radical shift in how you orient your life and your plans. He says it calls them back in Mark 1.15 to do what? To repent and to believe in the good news or gospel that he's sharing. He's saying this is so big and so shattering and so different that you need to repent, change the direction you're going, rethink things, get chucked the old bottles of your understanding, and you need to believe in the good news that I'm saying to you that I am Jesus the King from heaven launching God's new kingdom. It's at hand. Are we starting to understand what he's saying here? I don't know how else to say it, but I, I, I think we're tracking. So what do we do with that? I think the best way to sum up what Jesus is saying here to them and to us today is from one more scholar, and his name is James Edwards. I want you to listen closely to what he's after, because he's talking about what's, what do we do with this that Jesus is announcing. He says this. The question posed by the image of the wedding feast and the two Adam-like parables is not whether disciples will, like sewing a new patch on an old garment or refilling an old container, make room for Jesus and their already full agendas and lives. So he's saying, hey, what not to do, the wrong way to respond to this is to think I'm just to make room for Jesus. So he says, and my already full agenda and life. He says, that's not the right response. He goes on. The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration. Whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. End quote. When someone throws away, what does it do? It interrupts your entire weekend plan. Like weddings can be long, right? If it's a good wedding, fine. If it's a bad wedding, wow. Right? Food's not great, good gracious. And Daniel will tell you I'm notorious for leaving early. I apologize, but I, I just sometimes I just can't go that long. All right? And if you're gonna get married soon, shorten your wedding, all right? Because no one should have to stay for that for that. I went to a wedding in Canada. It, it's literally eight hours. It was yeah, it was we got into an argument over that one. It was at a hotel, and I, I, I found my way to the library that they had in this hotel. Imagine that, and uh, Danielle was not happy, right? A wedding interrupts business as usual and demands your presence to be there. He's saying it's not about you adding Jesus to your full agenda and plans. It's about stopping everything and reorienting to him. But isn't this often how we treat Jesus in his kingdom project? In our own busy lives, I want you to think critically about your life. Often, we treat Jesus and his kingdom as an add-on to our already set agendas. 
For some of you that are seriously devoted to Christ and to the, uh, to the Christian walk, I think it happens, I know it happens to us, but a lot of times subconsciously. And so I'd ask you to listen closely. Too often we add Christ onto the life plan we already had. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to go be a veterinarian or be a businessman or be a mom. I'm not saying those things are canceled, but they're done in a different way. Often we add Christ onto our life plan that we already had. We treat him as an upgrade that will just enhance the plan we're already busy pursuing for many of us subconsciously. There's this idea in relational psychology that I think makes this biblical point. It it goes like this. Often, newlywed wives go through this difficult and disorienting experience in the first six months after the honeymoon. Let me tell you about it. Here's why. Because for them, for this newlywed bride, they look at this new marriage as an earth-shattering change in their lives. As if they were starting life all over again with this new person. That their real life was now finally starting. It's not business as usual. But often, not every man in the room or every man in the world, but often this is not so for the men. The husband often typically doesn't see or respond in this way to the new marriage. Here's how they treat it. They often treat the new wife as an add-on to their existing plans and possessions, often subconsciously. As simply a new addition to the life they were already living and the goals they were already chasing. They check the box. Any of you about to get married? Okay, this might not be you, all right? So don't get upset. I'm just bringing you a psychological idea that can happen, all right? Let me caveat before I go any further. Sometimes the man will check off the box and continue on with the upgrade of a lovely new wife to the next thing that they were already busy pursuing. Their life does not radically change and start all over. Why? Because they're reading the situation wrongly. They're looking at it from the wrong perspective. The wife looking at it often from the right perspective. They're not reading it rightly and so they're just going on with business as usual. In today's church, I think we often can do the same thing and many times not on purpose. Often, without thinking about it, we can add Jesus and his kingdom on to our already set agendas and plans. Our American plans, or our career plans, or our financial plans, or our cultural agendas and the like. We just add him on. We orient Christ and his kingdom to those things instead of radically reorienting ourselves to him and his kingdom. You'll still be a veterinarian. You'll still be a wife. You'll still do those things. But you'll do them totally differently. When Jesus is not just an add-on, but is at the very center of those plans. What are we guilty of there? We're guilty of this. We misread the earth-shattering situation of Jesus and the kingdom. That's why he says, 
when he announces this whole new reality, he says, hey, here's what it's going to take. Repent, rethink the whole thing and turn around and believe in what I'm saying. He even says wild things like you have to become like a child. It's even the word convert. You have to become so humble and open minded. A child is like willing to do anything to a fault. Right. Like, hey, you want to go eat like five tubs of ice cream and Cheetos? Yeah, sure. Why? Because they're open. They're humble. Jesus is saying this is what's required to even enter the kingdom of God and get on board with what I'm doing, which is totally impossible outside of the grace that Christ supplies when he gives the command. I think, along with grace, the only cure that I know to this situation is what we're doing right now. To once a week interrupt ourselves. At the beginning of each week, we interrupt our life and its plans to gather on the Lord's day to hear the Lord's word. The church has been doing it for thousands of years. It is a sacred practice that is so important to not miss Christ and his kingdom. To not just do an add-on thing. It's stopping business as usual. What we do on Sundays, we're leaning in and letting Christ speak again. And we're doing it together as a faith family. Together as an alternative kingdom community who let the gospel reality, watch this, week after week, ferment in the middle of us like new wine. We let Jesus' ideas each Sunday catch us off guard. They're supposed to. And cause us to chuck out the old bottles of our understanding and agendas. To gather together one day a week is already culturally alternative. Most people don't do that with people you don't even know half the time. That's odd. And then secondly, to gather to him, to Christ. I don't know anyone else in society doing this week after week. We gather to him to then be sent out by Christ for the kingdom and with the gospel as a witness to God in the surrounding community. This is why Sundays are so important. This is why the local church is so important. Again, I don't know anyone else doing this week after week. This is why I believe we need to be committed to joining Christ and building up and out his church here at Grace Athens. We want to be this community that's here for decades, that's reaching this community in the name of Christ and the kingdom. We want over the years, we want his gospel to ferment here at Grace Athens and then expand out there through the witness of our lives. This is why anyone should volunteer and serve. This is why anyone should weekly give. This is why I'm going to encourage you to start coming a little bit more punctually on Sundays. Why? Because we don't know the new people that might walk in the door. We need to be here to greet them and to welcome them. To be hospitable to them as Christ would to the stranger. This is why we would... Become a member here at Christ's local church. This is why we would make disciples. 
This is why what we're doing is so important. And so I leave you with this question this week. The question goes like this. I want to ask you to just think on this and pray on this all week. Am I orienting Christ to myself and my plans or am I reorienting my life and plans to him and his kingdom? That's the question to ask this week. And this church is the place to put your roots and go after this week after week. Amen? Awesome.